As many of you know, the Buddha had many lists for his teaching, which allowed for the teaching to be transmitted in a clear way. And one of the lists that I like a lot and has helped me a great deal in my practice, particularly in the beginning of my practice, as a way to clarify what was actually going on in my experience, was the list of the five hindrances. And the five hindrances are five particularly difficult mind states that the Buddha pointed out need to be known and understood before we can really refine our practice. Because otherwise, these particular mind states, whenever they arise, we will use them as a way to think that we're not progressing in our practice. And these five, which are called five hindrances or five difficult mind states, are the first one is uh, the, the mind state of sensual desire. The second one is the arising of aversion or ill will. The third one is, which is always so fun to say, sloth and torpor. I mean, all you have to do is say it, and you know the state immediately, you know, sloth and torpor. We all know that one very well, especially when you come on a longer retreat. The fourth one is the opposite energy, which is the restlessness, too much energy in the body and mind. And the last one is uh, called skeptical doubt or self-doubt. And I want to talk about each one of these so that we can begin to discriminate a little bit more clearly when these particular mind states arise because it's very important to know how to work with them skillfully so they actually don't hinder our practice. And they're only called hindrances when we actually don't see very clearly what's occurring. So I want to see if we can explore a little bit together so we can have more understanding of these. There's a simile that's used to help us understand how these mind states manifest, and it's the simile of the clear pond. And if you imagine a clear pond without any obscuration in the pond, very clear, where you can see all the way down to the bottom, you know, very, very beautiful, clear water. And if someone were to pour beautiful dyes into the water, red and orange and yellow and blue. And if we became entranced by the dyes in the water, we wouldn't be able to see down to the bottom of the pool. This is what happens with sensual desire. We would get entranced by the beauty or the, the senses, and we don't see very deeply. For aversion, the analogy is... It's as if this water, this pond, had a hot spring in it, uh, filtering into it, and the water started to boil and was very hot and bubbly. And because the surface was so agitated, you couldn't see down to the depths of the pool. And, And aversion is very much like this. 
sometimes when I, I visit New Zealand a lot and, and see the hot pools there, the hot mud pools, and the mud is just kind of spurting up in these hot kind of spurts. And I think, yep, that's what that mind state is like. You know, it's very hot and uh, unpleasant and murky in that way. And that's aversion uh, or anger or ill will. Uh, The third one is sloth and torpor. (laughs) And that one is like if there were plants and algae and weeds all through the, the pond and you couldn't actually see down to the depths of the pond because it was all filled with this murky uh, uh, weeds. That's really what it's like, isn't it? It's all very murky and you know, kind of seaweedy, and <laughs> you know that's how the, the sloth and torpor feels. Uh, the restlessness is as if there was um, a strong wind blowing on the surface of the pond. And the top of the pond, the surface of the pond, is very agitated by the wind. And again, you can't see down to the depths. That's what the restlessness is like. It's just like the wind is blowing too strongly. You feel very agitated inside. And the doubt is as if somebody came along with a big paddle and stirred up the mud from the bottom of the pond so that the pond became very murky and muddy, just thick with this mud. And again, can't see very clearly. It's just mud. (laughs) And doubt is very much like that because if we're identified with the doubting thoughts, then we can't see because we're believing the thoughts as what's true and we can't connect with the truth of things. So these are the five uh, mind states that I would like to explore And the reason they're called hindrances, in the Pali, the word is nivarana, and it literally translates as covered over. It's covered over it. In the same way, it's like we we get lost or identified with these mind states and we get disconnected to being able to access our clarity and the wisdom to, to see the way things actually are. With the, with the, when we're identified with the hindrances, these mind states, as an obstacle, we can't access the clarity that helps us to see the true nature of things. When we feel hindered, when we're caught in this hindrance, we feel like something is blocking our way or interfering <laughs> with the flow of movement. Like we want to go forward, but we can't. It actually has that kind of, like the, as if we were walking down a path and something blocks or hinders us as we're walking down that path and we, we, we can't carry on with the forward movement. And so it gives us a sense, particularly in our meditation, that we are disconnected from the flow of our experience. And we have this, we feel blocked somehow, as if there is no flow, there's no movement. It can be kind of a stuck feeling, a contracted feeling in this, in this hindrance. We, we feel impeded in our meditation, as if our meditation's not progressing or going anywhere. To get a sense of this, we can for a moment imagine what it's like, how we feel when we're actually having a what we call a good meditation experience. You could just 
think for a moment, I'm assuming that you have had an experience that you've actually found enjoyable and pleasurable. If you think about that, is kind of get a sense of what that's actually like. Because when we talk about it, we use words like, I feel a quality of openness, or an easefulness, or uh, it seems like things are flowing, or things are moving. Um, We have more of a connection with the changing, the diversity of our experience. It doesn't feel so fixed or stuck or blocked. Um, We're connected more with the nature of the way things are, Um, just as the nature of reality is to flow in an unhindered way. There's nothing that blocks the flow of, of reality or nature. When we feel this within ourselves, at these times we're actually in touch with that same nature, with the nature of reality that is changing and moving and flowing and open and easeful. There's nothing hindering. There's nothing in the way. When we feel hindered, we have an experience of feeling caught. And what that actually is, is simply being simply I say it simply, the experience isn't simple, but sometimes understanding it might be simple, is the identification with that mind state as who I am. And that is all of who I am, is just the, the, the desire or the anger or the sleepiness or the restlessness. And we get so upset about it that we are in conflict and in a lot of tension with the fact that it's arising, and we just get more stuck, kind of like the tar baby. We just put our hand in the tar, and we just can't get out at all. We're stuck in it. This identification is actually the key uh, thing to understand in our practice. How do we do that? How do we get stuck? How do we cling on and believe that there's something interfering or some distraction or something wrong with what's happening in our meditation? Ruth Dennison, one of our elder teachers, would talk about the identification as Velcro mind. You know, that it's the same thing. It's sort of like the, there's contact, awareness is contact with, with an object of mind, a mind state, in this case these five difficult mind states, and then we just Velcro onto it. That's me, and something's wrong, something has to be changed. And this is identification, it's also called selfing. It's how we build up the sense of who we are, a sense of ourself in these mind states. In actuality, the flow hasn't stopped. Nature hasn't all, all of a sudden just found a stuck point. Reality has come to a still point. Everything's still flowing. We just don't see clearly. We're not seeing the flow. We're not seeing the changing nature. We're not seeing the, the, the empty, not-self nature in those moments. It's, we, we are confused. Our vision, our view is distorted at these times. That's what makes the state to feel like a hindrance. So when we're dealing with the five hindrances, our primary task really is to look at the ways that we may be clinging. And usually... What we're clinging on to is wanting to have a different experience. (laughs) 
That's your, it almost always comes down to that. You know, we want something different to be happening. We want a more pleasurable experience. And that's where we get into more complexity in relationship to these mind states because we don't want them, we don't like them, and we cling on and want them to be different and change, and then they become more of an obstacle. If there's no clinging, there's no hindrance, there's no fixation, it's just the changing landscape of our mind. Filled at this time with anger and ill will, or filled at this time with desire for pleasure, or for, with sleepiness, or with doubt or restlessness. So I want to talk a little bit about each one to, and also mention some of the antidotes of how to work with each one in a skillful way so that we might be able to support ourselves to let go and to see more clearly of what's really happening in our experience. The first one, the desire for sensual pleasures, sometimes simply called the wanting mind, the mind that wants something else, usually pleasurable, something pleasurable. It's important to know the energetic feeling as you get a sense of what that actually is like, and it helps us to discriminate as we can sense what the energy of it is like. And the energy for the desire for sense pleasures or sensual pleasure is an actual toppling forward. It's like the energy comes up, the desire comes up, and it pulls us forward towards the thing or the situation that we think is going to be more pleasurable. We, it's actually a kind of a contraction where the sense of self comes into being and then moves towards that thing and that thing that we think is going to bring us the pleasure. And we can actually feel, when we get more sensitive, we can feel the contraction. We can feel the grasping is what it is as well, where we are pulling in into a sense of uh, more of a solid self that wants to go after that pleasurable thing. Toppling forward into the five senses of sight, sound, taste, smell, or touch, and thought. We move also into thought. We kind of we fantasize and find pleasure in our thought. It's another way of going into the, the sensual realms. Essentially, our mind is not content to be here. We don't want to be here. We'd rather seek fulfillment somewhere else and something else that will, the belief is, that will make us feel better. And in those moments, depending on how identified we are, anything seems better than being here. How many times has that particular (laughs) moment arose where anything seemed better than being here? You know? And, and at the moment, I'm talking about the confused state of mind. Sometimes we may know that it might be better being somewhere else because it actually isn't right being where we are, and there may be some wisdom in that, so we may be able to make choices out of that. But I'm talking about more of this confused or deluded state of mind that just thinks, I'm in, I'm in discomfort now, I'd rather be over there. The mind believes it's that one thing that's going to make everything fine. Everything. If I just get that one thing, you know, like my, my, I was conditioned by my mother 
to believe that if I could just get one thing, I would be happy ever after, and that one thing was a good man. If I could just get the good man, I would be happy ever after. And it was a very strong belief. It is a strong belief culturally. And that goes deep. So that can condition the whole being uh, to seek out that one thing that's going to make the difference in my happiness. So we spend time controlling and manipulating our experience, grasping onto the pleasant and pushing away the unpleasant. And in this way, the, 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 the desire and the aversion work together. You can see that when you go after one, you can be pushing away the other. Very strong forces of mind of pushing and pulling and pushing and pulling. And we can feel kind of in the grip like something's got us and whipping us around by our tail, you know. These, these very strong energies of, of desire and aversion. You notice that on this retreat. It's the way that you're pulled out. You can actually sometimes just feel your body moving to get a cup of tea or, you know, or going back to your room and you know that you really shouldn't be going back to your room, but the bed is there and you just really want to lie down. You know, just the body's so conditioned to move towards that uh, body and mind. So we want to pay attention to this and see if we can actually name it. The antidotes for working with this mind state, of course, the first one is mindfulness, paying attention, recognizing it, naming it. This is desire, desire for pleasure, knowing it. And it can be very helpful on a longer retreat to use wise restraint to do things in moderation. Um, If I like having my tea... Maybe not sitting with the tea for 20 minutes and sitting with the tea for five minutes or, you know, any way that we may start to use some restraint or maybe not having the tea at all, just noticing the desire itself and then going and doing our walking meditation. This is also why we introduce the eight precepts because each precept, particularly the other three precepts, help with that restraint to restrain some of the habits and some of the conditioning that will just go out and Uh, do things that feel pleasurable or gratifying in some way. And we don't do this as an imposed rule, but out of wisdom. We think, if I do this, this is going to help me for my liberation, for awakening. It comes from a deeper place of understanding when we apply wise restraint. With desire, we can also reflect on the nature of impermanence. Perhaps by asking the question, how much will fulfilling this desire right now matter tomorrow or in six months or at the end of my life? And this can be a really helpful reflection because if we don't buy into the impulse or the desire now, in an hour or two, we probably won't even remember. You know, it it just will be gone because it's an impulse. It's a force of mind running through. If we don't act on it, it passes away. As concentration deepens, our mind becomes more one-pointed and unified. And this actually counters 
this movement of sensual desire. Because as the mind is more one-pointed and still, even the most alluring distraction cannot move the mind. The mind is just not infatuated with things because it's so happy where it is. And that's what happens as the mind starts to quiet down and get still. It's just happy. So why would it go out? Why would it try to find other pleasurable things? Because there's happiness right here. So this is one of the, the ways that we counter sensual desire through insight and through concentration. So desire. And each one of these obviously could be a whole hour talk, so I'm going to move through them fairly quickly so that we can kind of see the whole picture uh, in, in, in one, one stroke. The second one is aversion or ill will. And this is, again, the opposite. It's the not wanting mind, the mind that is judging or condemning, is resistant, is filled with anger, hatred, uh, fear. Even fear is a kind of, I don't want that, move away from it. Boredom was mentioned here. Boredom is a form of aversion because it's a way of cutting off, not having to feel, kind of keeping something at bay. It's usually a reaction to something we find unpleasant through the five senses or our thoughts. Again, having a sense of the energetic feel of aversion, it's very important to know that because, it's again, it's experienced in the mind and the body as contraction, as a, as a tightening. And, you know, like when we get angry or we get upset about something, it's almost we can feel our, our fists starting to tighten as if we want to begin to act out of that anger or that ill will in some way, if the body starts to come into a certain formation to begin to follow through with that uh, mind state. And this is what happens. There's a mind state, and then if we're not mindful of it, we actually take form. <laughs> we, we become the angry one, or the, the, the being takes on the formation of the desiring one, and we begin to act that out. This is, what, this is what happens in our being. There's a, with the aversion, there's a tightening energy. And it has a, a, a with it the, the I don't want this, I don't like this, which is also the kind of, even when I say it, I find my, my hands kind of pushing away. I don't like this, I don't want it, you know, away. And you can feel that energetically. And right now I'm not talking about the instinctual, primal reaction of fear when there's actually something to be uh, wise about in terms of go away or get away. You know, if a big black bear comes up, you know, there's an instant kind of withdrawing. That's different. That's not what I'm... There's wisdom. There's certainly wisdom in that. Um, but this, again, is because of something in our view. It's a mental configuration that's not seeing clearly. There's confusion in it. Again, in this state, there's a belief that something is taking away my happiness. If that thing would be gone or be away, or if I could get rid of that, I'd be happy. So, again, I just need to manipulate or control my situation in some way, and, and, and so that that thing or that person or whatever isn't around 
and then I can find peace in myself. An example of this is something that's been happening here probably since the first day of the, week, of the retreat is the phenomenon of ticking and beeping clocks. <laughs> and it's actually a very good example because for some people it's almost unbearable to hear the ticking or the beeping. And the aversion arises. They're, they're, the, the persons, some people don't know whether they can stay in the room. And it's a beep or a ticking. And yet we have this kind of reaction to it. And if it's not seen clearly, we may think that that's true, that if that thing was actually removed, then we could be happier. But I think we know the old adage uh, that Joseph Goldstein brought forth, his secret mantra. Joseph said one one night, I have a secret mantra for you. This is very secret, and this is really going to make a difference in your practice. You ready, he said. If it's not one thing, it's another. (laughs) No, and and it's so true. If it wasn't that, it would be something else. It's not the ticking clock. (laughs) I think it's something in our own mind, perhaps. (laughs) And then if the aversion isn't seen, then we have aversion to the aversion because it's such an unpleasant experience. And then we can, if we, then we see that we have the aversion to the aversion, then we can get more upset and have aversion to the aversion to the aversion. And we can take that back really far, you know, and be in a real complex ball of aversion. And, and we've felt this, we know this. And it can be complicated with a lot of um, the anger towards ourself and then shame and blame and hopelessness and worthiness. It gets all really thick if it's not seen clearly. So we might ask the question when this occurs to see if we can actually be present with what's arising, which is one of the antidotes, again, mindfulness, to see if we can be present. Maybe asking, what is so painful about this situation that I'll do anything not to feel it? What's so painful about it that I can't be present? I can't just be here because anger has the energy to want to discharge. It wants to, it, it's so hard to sit with the energy of aversion that we want to get it, get rid of it somehow. So that's why we often project it out, we blame it on other people, or we act it out in some way. Because then we can just dump it. I don't have to feel it. Just give it to that person or give it to that situation. But to actually feel it it's a very, it's a transformative experience because we're not just letting the energy uh, 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 get stronger and act out. So the more that we can bring our mindfulness to it and to see how much we can actually tolerate the energy that's moving, it's very a very powerful turning. We're actually turning our attention back inward towards ourself rather than outward towards the blaming and the judging and the condemning and making things wrong outside of ourselves, And we're saying it may be possible for me to transform this anger right here and now as I sit with it without doing anything about it at all, 
We see if we can feel the contraction. Let go of the story. We're usually so busy with the story and blaming that it's very, we forget to turn back and to be with ourselves, to be present and to feel it. If we remember, then we might be able to breathe and soften around the contraction, begin to actually feel it and see if we can help ourselves, support ourselves to relax into the experience and then see what happens as we do that. Maybe having a quality of curiosity in order to actually understand what's happening. What is this? What's so strong about this? Staying present. It doesn't need to go away. This is so hard to remember. We don't have to get rid of the aversion, of the anger, of the judgment, or whatever it is. We just need to see it for what it is. And in the seeing of it, the mindfulness will begin to transform it. And it will begin to lose its power, its charge. Another thing to look for is the tone of voice that comes in to the psyche. How are we actually talking to ourselves, either about ourselves or another person? If there's a strong charge in the voice, we can know that aversion is present. And name it, notice it, aversion, aversion, judging, condemning, criticizing, and see if we can let it stop there, be there. Because this energy wants to act out, and when we don't follow it, there's the possibility that we can actually neutralize the reaction with the mindfulness itself by holding the energy in the awareness without having to discharge it. This is another key, another secret in a way to the transformation, to the neutralizing of these strong emotions. Because otherwise, we're just feeding them and reinforcing them. As our concentration develops, we become more quiet, more still. We begin to feel an inner delight and joy that arises from the concentration itself, from the settling of the mind itself, which is called piti. And that arises simply from being in contact with the present experience. And as we deepen into that, this actually shuts out the ill will and the aversion from arising because we're feeling the delight and the joy. So why would we get caught up in aversion when everything's feeling quite good? So it has a way of suppressing the aversion from arising. desire and aversion. The third one is the sloth and torpor. Essentially, what happens in sloth and torpor is really just a lack of energy. We lose energy. It's like what before we go to bed at night, and as we start to drop, the energy drops, and it drops in such a way that we can go to sleep. This is a, a wholesome thing. It's a positive thing. It manifests as sleepiness or dullness, laziness, sometimes boredom. That's not so wholesome. But the actual loss of energy is just something that's natural as a human being. But the reason this feels like a hindrance is because 
there's really no energy to lift the mind to the object. There isn't enough energy to lift the attention so that we can actually see what's happening. We just feel dull and listless and out of touch. And yet we are asked to stay present, even with this mind state, because as we do, we are supporting ourselves to deepen concentration because we are actually having the intention to see if we can lift the mind back up, which is what we need to do for our practice. And I'll say a little bit more of that in a minute with the antidotes. Another reason it's so important to investigate sleepiness and stay present for it is because there's a general habit of human beings to cut off from their experience, our experience. It's a, it's a, it's a tendency in our human uh, predicament to cut off. And we cut off in three ways. We cut off through our desire or greed. We cut off through our anger and our aversion and hatred. And we cut off through falling asleep or sleepwalking, kind of being out of touch with what's happening, not really connecting, being in more of a, a confused state or a dull state. And sometimes we talk about the human race sleepwalking through life. You know, it's like, is anybody awake here? You know, is anybody, (laughs) what's happening? You know, knock, knock, wake up. You know, there's this sense of being asleep, of people being asleep. So what's going on? Why do we cut off like this? There's three possibilities to investigate with sleepiness or dullness. One is that there may be an actual physical need. And sometimes it's just people don't want to actually acknowledge that there may be a need. It must be something deeper. There must be something wrong. It may be, particularly when people come into retreats, such a busy life, such an active life, so many commitments and responsibility that people are exhausted. I mean, this has happened so much in um, particularly the people in a seven-day retreat or 10-day retreat. I mean, it takes people days to recover from their life. And sometimes they don't get a chance to settle down enough to actually be present enough for deeper practice because they're recovering from their exhaustion. So there may be a genuine need for sleep, or there may be some way that you're not physically well, and the body's tired, or the mind is tired, and this needs to be listened to. This needs to be attended to. This is not unusual, and it's something that's important not to override. As people go further into retreat, longer time in retreat, it's usually best to cut back on sleep, to sleep maybe... Um, five hours or six hours because by having less sleep it actually brings more energy for the practice. Again, one of those counterintuitive aspects of the practice. And this supports concentration. Another uh, possibility that might be happening with sleepiness is that there just may be a strong habit or tendency of mind to cut off, to be dull, to not want to be present. Because we have 
many strategies in our life to shut down as a defense against the pain in our life. We've learned how to do that. So when we come on retreat, we may be confronted with these strategies that we've developed over time to just say, no, I don't want to be present for my experience. And we just kind of become dull or shut down. So we want to look to see what's actually happening here. Is this the case? Is there some way to arouse more energy so we can pay attention to what's happening? Or it may be, the third thing, another way of shutting off, is that there may be some resistance to something that's arising in the present moment that we don't want to attend to, we don't want to feel, we don't want to be with, right in the moment. It may be something very particular. And this isn't unusual either. And it's something to actually be aware of, that if things were going along well for some time, and then all of a sudden you find yourself getting in more of a contracted and resistant state, it might be that there is something arising that you don't want to see or you don't want to look at. And at those times, it's important to be very gentle, very tender with yourself, just to see if you can hold yourself in a way that might allow for this issue to arise without the pressure, without the expectation. Because it may be that there is something that wants to be born new and fresh in consciousness that hasn't been seen before. And so we take time with that. There may be some loneliness or some sorrow or some grief or some sense of loss or touching some hidden memory that we haven't wanted to look at before. And this can bring about some dullness or sleepiness of mind through the resistance that we're feeling. And this is okay. We just spend time kind of holding this and and holding it lightly so that maybe this can come forth. So essentially, the antidote for um, sleepiness is to arouse energy. The first thing we want to look at is whether there's any aversion towards the sleepiness to see if we can actually accommodate it so we're not putting more pressure on ourselves through the aversion and then, of course, being more tired because we're so aversive to the sleepiness, which just is a a catch-22. So paying attention to the relationship to the sleepiness And then to see if we can actually find ways to bring more energy. Sit up straighter, uh, open the eyes, put the hands on top of the head, um, standing up. You can stand right up here in the meditation hall, and that really helps to move the energy more in the body. Um, Taking faster walks outside, just really helping ourselves, supporting ourselves to move that energy that feels so uh, heavy and so dull. Oh, and to see it as an energy issue, that we want to bring, bring that energy up. The intention itself to stay present has energy in it. Just the, 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 the willfulness, the, the wanting to stay present, uh, that sense of urgency in the practice, all of that helps that, that energy to, to lift up. So remembering the re- remembering to come back, remembering to be mindful, that intention to return is actually, again, quite a powerful intention to help us uh, come back into the present and can cut through the sleepiness. 
sometimes when the concentration is strong, we might find ourselves sinking into a very tranquil or calm state. And there's a name for this. It's called sinking mind. And the sinking mind actually has a similar feeling of dullness or sleepiness. We can find ourselves just going out like that. You know, we're really concentrated and we're really focused, but then the mind just kind of... Because we're so calm. We're so tranquil, you know. And so then what's required is a kind of a balancing again of that energy, bringing more energy up, arousing the energy so to balance the concentration. There's nothing wrong. We're not, we're, we haven't backtracked. It's just to see that there's some uh, wise application of effort needed where we bring more effort in. One of the things we can do at these times is, again, having the intention to aim more directly at our primary object or the objects of meditation. And through that aiming and making contact with the breath or the sounds or the body, that in itself begins to cut through and lift the mind up. And that in itself counters the dullness. So we actually need to see if we can find that intention in our practice to arouse the energy even when we feel so dull. And it's hard to do it. But if we don't do it, we just kind of get stuck for periods of time in these lethargic states of mind. Somebody reminded me today it's like being a couch potato. You know, we just wind up sitting on the couch and nothing much is happening at all. So the intention is actually quite important. The fourth one, restlessness. In the text, it's restlessness and worry. The opposite energy, again, is the restlessness of mind and body. Agitation, anxiety, worry, frustration, edginess, irritability, all the ways we feel agitated in our body and our mind. And it's usually a hindrance because it's compounded with aversion. Restlessness is so unpleasant isn't it? It's so unpleasant. When that agitation is in the body, the anxiety or the... It's just, it's, we, it's so hard to be present with it. So then aversion comes and then compounds it. We feel like we're even more in a pressure cooker. It's a complex mind state, restlessness. There's thoughts and feelings and sensations. In the mind, the mind is scattered, unfocused, unable to rest. The mind is moving in the past and the future. We can spend hours going over the same thing again and again and again, trying to resolve something and wondering why we can't get it resolved. And You know, this sense of unfinished business and continually feeling agitated about it. It just goes on and on if it's not seen as a restless mind. In the body, we feel the physical agitation and nervousness, the unsteadiness. We're just like the energy is just very unbalanced and moving in all kinds of directions. It's not an easy state to work with, and I think we really have to appreciate this so that we can be quite gentle with ourselves when we find this energy being out of balance in this way. And in recent years, I've really come to appreciate how deep this restlessness is actually in the body. Because it has to do with a habit that has occurred over time 
which is associated with fear. And for the ego, the ego is, is fear, is a fear body. And in fear, we're agitated and we're restless. And so if there's identification with ego, which there is until we are fully enlightened, fully enlightened beings, there's going to be this state of inner restlessness. And I I like putting this out because it puts it in a bigger context, you know, when we get down on ourselves or, you know, upset with ourselves for, for feeling these states these are very deeply conditioned. Very, there's a deep root for these states of mind. My teacher, Hamid Ali, from the Diamond Heart School, describes restlessness as a contraction in the nervous system. He says, it is the specific feeling of suffering. It is not just pain or anger or fear. It is emotional suffering in the purest form. It is the suffering at the core of all human pains. And I think that's really beautiful for us to reflect on because, yes, it's there. We're, when, we, when we become sensitive and we really feel into our state, there's restlessness there. And the more that we can come to a way of being with and holding ourselves in a kind and compassionate way, then we're not adding more pressure on to make ourselves more restless and more agitated. We need to find ways of taking the pressure off. So any kind of aversion or judgment or condemning, all that's adding more pressure on and makes us feel more restless. This is why the practices of the Brahma-viharas and love and compassion and joy and equanimity are so purifying for our energetic system our subtle body, because it really, it really touches the, the deepest form of, of restlessness and suffering within us as we begin to um, refine our consciousness and our experience. So that's the antidote. The antidote is to bring as much calm and steadiness as we can when the restlessness is present, because otherwise we're just adding more fuel. So the first thing to do is look to see if there's aversion present. What's our relationship to it? Can we actually be kind, gentle with ourselves? And it needs a lot of space. We need to be really spacious with ourselves so that we're not feeling like we're in a smaller container with the mindfulness, like trying to focus on the breath or trying to focus on a step. Because we'll just, again, make the container too small. So we actually have to open the container meaning the awareness, really wide, so that the restlessness has somewhere to move through. In the same way as aversion, restlessness also wants to act out. And that's where we can find ourselves here on the retreat, starting to do things that we later regret, you know, like talking to people or, you know, leaving notes for people or, you know, starting to get agitated about things and bothering the staff or whatever it is, you know, because... We're just feeling all this restlessness and we don't know what to do with it and it wants some kind of outlet. So it's so important to really know it. It, This is restlessness. And again, to see if we can feel it, we can contain it without putting more pressure on ourselves in that way. Gentle breathing, bringing compassion to our situation, to our human predicament. 
These are very helpful antidotes. And as concentration deepens, what we again experience is a kind of happiness that is born through the mind of concentration. And then the mind is happy being at home. There's no need to go anywhere else. There's not the restlessness in our experience that is wanting to move out and leave home. We feel happy where we are. There's an ease and a comfort within. So this happiness that is born of concentration, the sukha it's called, actually excludes restlessness and worry. So as the concentration deepens, it uproots. It's like temporarily, not permanently, <laughs> while we're on review, there's a temporary um, uh, releasing of these hindrances so that we actually have uh, the opportunity to, to be more in contact with the way things actually are. So desire, aversion, sloth and torpor, restlessness. The last one is doubt or skeptical doubt, self-doubt. And this is actually the most powerful one of all, surprisingly, because this is the one that actually has the power to stop our practice. If we really believe what our mind is telling us, then we might say, I'm not worthy of this practice. I shouldn't be doing this practice. I can't do this practice. I should just go home. And if we believe it, we might just find ourselves doing that and saying, this practice isn't for me, and then stopping our practice. But doubt arises when we view ourselves from the position of our ego or our small self. This is just another formation when we believe these thoughts, we take the form, the formation, our being takes the form of a doubting person, of a doubting or confused person. And from this location, we don't recognize our capacities and our abilities, our inner resources, our powers, our wisdom. We actually feel small. We feel unworthy. We feel incapable. We feel limited in our practice because we're believing these thoughts. And then those, we can start to doubt the teachers. Well, those teachers, it's those teachers. They don't really know. They're not enlightened. They don't know the Dharma very well. They can't teach very well. Projecting it out or the teachings. The teachings don't make sense. The teachings don't hold together. And then just start to doubt everything, and everything falls apart. This is also a complex mind state that can manifest from the subtle to the extreme It's a confused mind. It's an indecisive mind, a mind that doesn't know where to land for its stability. There's no ground. It just goes from here and there, and it's just like it's looking for something to say this is true. It just doesn't know. It doesn't know what to believe in. There's no trust in Buddha Buddha nature, in a deeper nature, in a deeper goodness of, of, of of who we are. This is from uh, Sharon Salzberg's book on faith. When we believe that our circumstances, inner and outer, will never change and that there is nothing we can ever do to find love or peace again, our faith is consumed by hopelessness and doubt. 
So this is an example of an inner dialogue of doubt. I'm sitting here trying to meditate, and my mind is wandering. I don't feel my breath. I can't even find it. What's the point? Maybe this is not the right practice for me. I should be doing something more active. You know, maybe I should be running, or maybe I should be uh, doing Sufi dancing, or, you know, some other kind of practice. Well, maybe it is the right practice, but it's just not the right time. I have too many other things going on in my life right now. Um, I just sit here and I think of all the things I have to do. I'm just planning anyhow, so why should I even try to meditate? Um, Why should I try to be quiet? And how do I know the Buddha was enlightened anyhow? You know, it's probably all myth. It's just, it was just, it's mythology, you know, and I'm just going to go for a run. There's no point in doing this. It's it's something like that, Yeah, just It's just so confused, such a confused mind state. And without some insight, we rarely bring doubt to the doubt. You know, there's something called great doubt, which is there's sometimes we need to doubt what's happening. Is like, is that really true? This is called wise doubt or great doubt, which is very different from the doubt that arises from the small mind. Very undermining. And when we believe it, we are perpetuating the story of me. The story of I, this is who I am, so incapable, so unworthy. And when it's not seen, it just reinforces this fixed view, this fixed idea of who I take myself to be. And if we don't see it, there's really no way to come out of that view. The doubt itself forms the view. So the view itself has to be seen into So the antidote for doubt is to see if we can actually see the thoughts that are arising and just see them as thoughts, empty thoughts arising. They're not saying anything about me. They're not saying anything about reality. They're not giving them the power to define me or to limit me, to keep me small and contained, to see the thoughts for what they are. So powerful when these these uh, doubting thoughts arise. Acknowledging the the thoughts is doubt. There's doubt, doubt, doubts arising. And see if there's the identification. Again, that the selfing, the Velcro mind around these thoughts. It's very helpful then to anchor the attention back into the breath, back into the body, moving away from the thoughts, grounding, finding the ground, because when we're caught in the doubt, we don't know where the ground is. So grounding, centering back into the body, into the experience. This can help to cut through. And what truly dispels doubt is faith. What is faith? Faith is when we really can trust in our own unique goodness. The goodness of our being, the goodness of who we are, and the goodness of other beings and who they are. It's really the faith in our own Buddha nature, in our own wisdom nature, and the wisdom of the Dharma and these teachings. This is really what cuts through doubt. Because we've been told since the beginning of time, our conditioning is so strong that we are small, we are limited, 
incapable. And we doubt our own goodness. So as we practice, we begin to see through this identification, this formation, these patterns of mind that gives rise to this view. And we begin to experience more of the truth of who we are. This kind of practice invites us to surrender to the unfolding process so that we can begin to let go of our fears and our attachments, surrender into the process so we feel and sense more into the unknowingness of the way things are and who we are. Don't know. Keeping the questioning alive, is it true? What is true? What do I know? Can I know that? Questioning, investigating. As concentration deepens and we are more immersed in our experience as it is, there's actually no space for doubt to arise because we're here, we're in contact, we're in connection with what's true. There's no doubt. Yeah, I'm here. This is true. I know what's real. So there's no room for doubt. So these five difficult mind states, I think much of what we learn in retreat and in our meditation practice is really how to work with these five states of mind so that they no longer become a hindrance to the forward movement. Everything is already flowing. Everything is already open. Everything is already in its natural state of peace. We don't recognize it. As we look more carefully, more directly at our experience, we can begin to contact that which is already happily at home, then these hindrances don't arise anymore. They become, they lose their energy, they lose their power. And more and more as we mature in practice, we start to feel more still, more quiet, more spacious in ourselves. On retreat, we can experience this temporarily, but as we continue along the path, we feel this more and more permanently. Our consciousness becomes more refined, more subtle, more in tuned with reality, just as it is. We see things truly as changing, impersonal, unsatisfactory, and there's no more clinging, there's no more holding, there's no more controlling, no more, no more manip- manipulating but we can rest more easily into the way things are. This empty phenomenon rolling on in the landscape of our mind. Let's sit for a few minutes together. <laughs> 